Chapter 7 of The Greatest Thing in the World and Other Addresses The Program of Christianity This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Greatest Thing in the World and Other Addresses by Henry Drummond Chapter 7 The Program of Christianity To preach good tidings unto the meek to bind up the broken-hearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Isaiah 61, 1-3a The Program of Christianity What does God do all day? once asked a little boy. One could wish that more grown-up people would ask so very real a question. Unfortunately, most of us are not even boys in religious intelligence, but only very unthinking children. It no more occurs to us that God is engaged in any particular work in the world than it occurs to a little child that its father does anything except be its father. Its father may be a cabinet minister, absorbed in the nation's work, or an inventor, deep in schemes for the world's good. But to this master egoist, he is father, and nothing more. Childhood, whether in the physical or moral world, is the great self-centered period of life, and a personal God who satisfies personal ends is all that for a long time many a Christian understands. But as clearly as there comes to the growing child a knowledge of its father's part in the world, and a sense of what real life means, there must come to every Christian whose growth is true some richer sense of the meaning of Christianity, and a larger view of Christ's purpose for mankind. To miss this is to miss the whole splendor and glory of Christ's religion. Next to losing the sense of a personal Christ, the worst evil that can befall a Christian is to have no sense of anything else, to grow up in complacent belief that God has no business in this great groaning world of human beings, except to attend to a few saved souls, is the negation of all religion. The first great epoch in a Christian's life, after the awe and wonder of its dawn, is when there breaks into his mind some sense that Christ has a purpose for mankind, a purpose beyond him and his needs, beyond the churches and their creeds, beyond heaven and its saints, a purpose which embraces every man and woman born every kindred and nation formed, which regards not their spiritual good alone, 
but their welfare in every part, their progress, their health, their work, their wages, their happiness in this present world. What then does Christ do all day? By what further conception shall we augment the selfish view of why Christ lived and died? I shall mislead no one, I hope, if I say, for I wish to put the social side of Christianity in its strongest light, that Christ did not come into the world to give men religion. He never mentioned the word religion. Religion was in the world before Christ came, and it lives today in a million souls who have never heard his name. What God does all day is not to sit waiting in churches for people to come and worship him. It is true that God is in churches, and in all kinds of churches, and is found in many churches more immediately than anywhere else. It is also true that while Christ did not give men religion, he gave a new direction to the religious aspiration bursting forth now and then, and always from the whole world's heart. But it was his purpose to enlist these aspirations on behalf of some definite practical good. The religious people of those days did nothing with their religion except attend to its observances. Even the priest, after he had been to the temple, thought his work was done. When he met the wounded man, he passed by on the other side. Christ reversed all this, tried to reverse it, for he is only now beginning to succeed. The tendency of the religions of all time has been to care more for religion than for humanity. Christ cared more for humanity than for religion. Rather, his care for humanity was the chief expression of his religion. He was not indifferent to observances, but the practices of the people bulked in his thoughts more than the practices of the church. It has been pointed out as a blemish on the immortal allegory of Bunyan that the pilgrim never did anything, anything but save his soul. The remark is scarcely fair, for the allegory is designedly the story of a soul in a single relation, and besides, he did do a little. But the warning may well be weighed. The pilgrim's one thought, his work by day, his dream by night, was escape. He took little part in the world through which he passed. He was a pilgrim, traveling through it. His business was to get through safe. Whatever this is, it is not Christianity. Christ's conception of Christianity was heavens removed from that of a man setting out from the city of destruction to save his soul. It was rather that of a man dwelling amidst the destructions of the city, and planning escapes for the souls of others, escapes not to the other world, but to purity and peace and righteousness in this. In reality, Christ never said, Save your soul, 
It is a mistranslation which says that. What he said was, save your life. And this not because the first is nothing, but only because it is so very great a thing that only the second can accomplish it. But the new word, altruism, the translation of love thy neighbor as thyself, is slowly finding its way into current Christian speech. The people's progress, not less than the pilgrim's progress, is daily becoming a graver concern to the church. A popular theology, with unselfishness as part at least of its root, a theology which appeals no longer to fear, but to the generous heart in man, has already dawned, and more clearly than ever men are beginning to see what Christ really came into this world to do. What Christ came here for was to make a better world. The world in which we live is an unfinished world. It is not wise, it is not happy, it is not pure, it is not good, it is not even sanitary. Humanity is little more than raw material. Almost everything has yet to be done to it. Before the days of geology, people thought the earth was finished. It is by no means finished. The work of creation is going on. Before the spectroscope, men thought the universe was finished. We know now it is just beginning. And this teeming universe of men in which we live has almost all its finer color and beauty yet to take. Christ came to complete it. The fires of its passions were not yet cool. Their heat had to be transformed into finer energies. The ideals for its future were all to shape. The forces to realize them were not yet born. The poisons of its sins had met no antidote the gloom of its doubt no light, the weight of its sorrow no rest. These, the Savior of the world, the light of men, would do and be. This, roughly, was his scheme. Now this was a prodigious task, to recreate the world. How was it to be done? God's way of making worlds is to make them make themselves. When he made the world, he made a rough ball of matter and supplied it with a multitude of tools to mold it into form. The raindrop to carve it, the glacier to smooth it, the river to nourish it, the flower to adorn it. God works always with agents, and this is our way when we want any great thing done. And this was Christ's way when he undertook the finishing of humanity. He had a vast, intractable mass of matter to deal with, and he required a multitude of tools. Christ's tools were men. Hence, his first business in the world was to make a collection of men. 
In other words, he founded a society. End of chapter 7 of The Greatest Thing in the World and Other Addresses The Program of Christianity <laughs>